Samuel chapter 1, if you find that you can stand, 2 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 19. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on the high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you, God, for your word and all that you have here for us. I ask, God, that you would just speak into our hearts and souls, that we would hear you, Lord, and that by your spirit, our spirits, God, would be in communion with you, and that as we've just celebrated communion, God, that we would live in that reality that you are in us and that you want to speak to us and lead us and guide us into all that is good and true. So for your name's sake, God, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in each of our lives as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to thank Connor for filling in for me last week. I was a bit under the weather, had a cold, and it really helped me to get some extra rest. And I'm pretty much over that now. And um, I would say that also just in the last um, elders meeting we had, I wasn't there, but um, just the report I got is that um, the, the men were talking about just how the Lord is, has blessed us as a church, that there are a number of men in the church that are able and willing to preach and, and have that desire to. And so we're really thankful for the unique place that God has put us in, that there are really quite, uh, we're very, very blessed in that way. And, and so we'd actually like to um, continue to give opportunity as, as um, there is um, the chance to do that, to have some of these young guys um, preach. It's always a blessing um, for the church, and, and it's an encouragement to them as, as the Lord um, continues to grow them and, and, and build them up. And so we're grateful for that. Next week, our music director, Todd, who's not here this week, appreciate um, Wade and the girls standing in for Todd. Um, Todd will be preaching for me next week. It'll be our spring break, and, and Patsy and I are hoping to go up to Kentucky and see Noah's Ark up there. Uh, it's not the original one, but um, I, at least I've heard that. Uh, but um, nonetheless, we're hoping to go up and see that. And um, it reminds me of me telling you when I was preaching earlier another time that about the abomination of desolation. If you've never seen that, then you can go see my daughter's bedroom. And um, though I, I would trust it's better now that she's married. Anyway. 
she's not here either, so I'm not getting the death ray look while I'm preaching. Um, we also, as a, as a family, want to thank you as a church for praying for Ford, our little grandson, five months old, and some of you have been asking me for updates on that. He is still in the hospital, and, um, and it was Thursday evening. I mistakenly told somebody it was Friday evening. But Thursday evening after um, dinner, um, Brooklyn was noticing that he was, um, looked like he was having seizures. And um, he had quite a few of them just in a 10 or 15-minute span, um, probably 15 or 20 seizures. Um, and um, it is, you know, it's not a, not a nice thing to experience. Um, just watching that is very distressful, distressing. And um, anyway, and so they stopped, and then the next morning they started again. And so they took him to the um, emergency, children's emergency at Methodist Hospital in San Antonio. And um, he was admitted, and they did an, um, a CT scan. Nothing was wrong with his brain that, they, that the CT scan revealed. They did an EEG, and, um, and that was inconclusive. And the neurologist came in yesterday and said he thinks that it's, they aren't seizures, but that it's acid reflux. And, um, and it sometimes acid reflux can look like a child is seizing when he is not. And so, but um, Brooklyn and Michael didn't want to release him until more tests had been done. And so they've just completed a 24-hour EEG, and the neurologist will be looking at that. Um, chances are that they'll um, discharge him today, and then he'll go back in tomorrow for a, a test to see uh, an, ac- an acid reflux test. So that's what our hope is, but um, God knows, and it's been a bit of a stressful weekend, seeing the little guy all hooked up to tubes and wires and everything, Um, but we're thankful for God's grace, as he's always very, very good. That actually leads me a little bit into um, 2 Samuel here, in these first few chapters. And I I read this portion here, it's it's David's... um, um, if my subtitle, my Bible says, David's dirge for Saul and Jonathan. It's his, his um, song of mourning over the death of these two men, these two good friends of his, at least Saul, Jonathan being a very good friend, David um, having to suffer for so many years under Saul's persecution of him. It's a remarkable portion of Scripture here, and, it, and it's really just the lead-in to these next chapters, but... I can't read this and, and not think about all that David's been through for the last 10 years, where Saul is, has hunted him like an animal for the last 10 years. And David has had hardly any um, respite from that. He did have a year and four months where he went to the city of Ziglag and he hid out there trying to escape the persecutions of Saul. That was a bad decision on many, many levels. Um, but it would be tempting to say that, that Saul has stolen 10 years of David's life. Um, the man has just um, not had an easy time. And he's not had time with his, with his folks because he's had to take them down to Moab and hide them away. And he's had 600 um, fugitives gathered around him, men of war who have their own issues with Saul and who more than, would have been more than happy to have seen David assassinate Saul. It just, it's, I just can't imagine from the time that he was 20 years old to 30 years old that he's lived the life of hardship that he has lived for nothing that he has done. Innocent man, 
And many of the Psalms, as we've seen, were written surrounding these events. And he's, and he's proclaiming and, and, and protesting to God that, what have I done? I'm innocent. I don't deserve what this man has done to me. And that is all true. And so then we come to this chapter, and at the beginning of chapter 1, we're told that, that David had, um, had just come back in verse 1. It says, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, that David remained two days in Ziglag. And then, as God would have it, an Amalekite came to David and said, I've just come from the battlefields where Saul and his, and his son Jonathan and the brothers were all killed. Verse 2, and it happened on the third day that, behold, a man came from the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And it came about that when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said, from wherever do you come? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did things go? Please tell me. And he said, the people have fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man told him saying, and said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And behold, Saul was leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. And when he looked behind me, Behind him and saw me, he called to me and said, and I said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now, it's never a good day to be an Amalekite. Um, but to be an Amalekite bringing this news on the day when David has just come back from slaughtering the Amalekites, it's, this is not a good time to be an Amalekite. Then he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me. For agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, and for the people of the Lord, and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he said, I'm, an Amalek- I'm a son of an alien in Malachite. Then David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him, and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, this man apparently felt that by coming to David with this news, that he would receive a huge reward. Because this man, as an Amalekite, and we've traced the history of the Amalekites already, were the perpetual, lifelong enemies of Israel. There was nothing good, nothing spiritual about these people. And this man being, being the, the man that represents the flesh as he so perfectly does, thinking as a man without God, a God thought in his head, thinks, surely Saul is David's enemy and David will rejoice to hear the news that his enemy is dead. But what he doesn't reckon on is David is not like this Amalekite. He's not thinking just as the world thinks. He's not thinking as a man who has no relationship with God. 
David, in these 10 years, has come to understand Saul has stolen nothing from him. Saul has not cheated him out of 10 years. He has a king, David does. And that king is in charge of Saul. And that king has been accomplishing things in David's life that he could never have accomplished apart from Saul. And David hasn't been living these 10 years in bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness toward a man. He knows he's been wronged. And there's been times when he's just cried out in agony over all that he has suffered. But he knows in his heart before God that the greatest enemy he has is not Saul. It's his own soul, his own sin. And that Saul is simply God's instrument to get at David in ways that he couldn't have done apart from Saul. And when he hears the news that Saul is dead, knowing that Saul has never been his chief problem in life, he's truly grieved and mourned at the loss of this man. It's remarkable. Death not only delivers us and brings relief to us, even the death of other people, especially if they have been difficult or maybe they've just been a burden in that we've had to care for them, um, it's a relief. But it is also a revealer. Just as triumph can reveal what's in our heart. Proverbs says a man is tested by the praise that is accorded to him. Sometimes the greatest test that a man can go through is, is praise, triumph, victory. But death and how we respond to it, especially the death of an enemy, is also a great revealer of the soul. And David is genuinely grieved over the loss of both Saul and his friend Jonathan. And I'm impressed. Now there is some apparent contradiction or conflict between the account that this Amalekite gives and the account at the end of 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel, there's no record of any person coming and assisting Saul's suicide. It just says Saul fell on his sword and, his, and he died. And now this Amalekite saying he fell on his sword, but he didn't die. And he asked the Amalekite to finish him off. Now, it may be that it happened exactly as the Amalekite said. That he was near death, but he wasn't completely dead. And he requested that this man finish him off. Or it may be that the Amalekites just simply made it up because he wanted to appear to have done the right thing, the thing that was beneficial to David, not knowing how David would react to this. Either way, what is remarkable in this passage is not the Amalekite and what he was thinking, because he's thinking like a man would think. But what's remarkable is David's response to the news of an enemy who has died. It is supernatural. I believe this is one of the high points in David's life. And he's not, it's not a high point because he can move into the throne now. But it's because he has no idea all that's going to still come to him and how long it'll take before he sits on the throne. But he is responding as God would have us to respond when our enemies perish. Just some of the scriptures that talk about our enemies and how the Lord would have us to respond. I know these are not new for you. We've all heard these verses, but it's good to be reminded because we all have people in our lives that 
at best don't appreciate us and sometimes actually just despise the ground we walk on. Proverbs 24, 17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not be glad in your heart when he stumbles. Proverbs 25, 21, and it's quoted in Romans 12, 20, says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. This is the heart of God, reproduced in the life of the Christian. That we not be those people who dance on the graves of those who have died. But we grieve. We grieve at the loss. Sometimes at the loss of what God could have done in a person, but was not permitted to do and the loss that that brings to everybody. You probably saw the, the um, um, lost the word, not eulogy, but yeah, it was a eulogy, um, that was put in a newspaper, Texas newspaper, made uh, national news. Um, I forget which little newspaper it was, a small town, and, and, there's, and the survivors of a man who had died um, basically just put a good riddance obituary in the newspaper. It was so harsh. It made national news. And they just said there was nothing good about this man. He couldn't have died sooner. He did so much damage and hurt to people's lives. And we don't know if we'll ever get over any all that he has done to us, but we are sure glad he's finally off the face of the earth. Wow. And I read that and I thought, well, at least they're honest. But that is not the heart of God. Not the heart of Jesus. For God says he does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. No wonder Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When he himself does not desire that any should perish. I don't think there's any problem in rejoicing when righteousness triumphs over wickedness. Scripture says we're to do that. We're to pray that that would happen. I don't think there's a problem with even hoping that one day there will be justice. Because God has said that he is going to bring justice to this earth. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul encourages the believers there who are suffering great persecution. He says there's a day, an hour of retribution that is coming. And you can be sure of that. But the scripture says it is not okay to be glad that someone is getting punished. It is not okay to rejoice when our enemy is brought down. And we should fear, lest that what has happened to them should happen to us. We rejoice over our enemies in so many different ways, and one is just, just we just express it openly. <laughs> it's a good day, ding dong, the witch is dead, right? Sometimes it's a little more subtle. And I sure see this in me. I find myself so subtly rejoicing over the demise of an enemy. When I see my heart, I have a friend who begins to view my enemy the same way that I view my enemy. And secretly in my heart, I go, yay, somebody's joining my party here. And I feel vindicated. I feel justified. Because somebody else sees my enemy the way that I see them. 
in its wickedness to God. How can we have victory over our enemies? Again, it's supernatural. It truly is. We need to pray for them. Not as my mother once told me when I was, she came in and knelt beside my bed when I was a junior high boy, knowing that I had kids at school that I hated, and, and she had no idea how much I hated them until she came in one night and she says, I'm not leaving your room until you pray for all the boys that you hate. And I said, well, Mom, you're going to be here a long time because there's a lot of boys on that list. So she must have been tired, so she said, okay, you pick out the one that you hate the most and pray for him. And I did. And I said, God, kill him. (laughs) I felt it was a very sincere prayer. And I figured God knows the heart. I might as well pray from the heart. And she says, no, you know how God wants you to pray. And so I said, just as short as my first prayer, God, save him. And God did. Almost disappointed at that. <laughs> I've told you the story, you know, and I, it wasn't very long. A week or two later, some kid walks up to me in school and says, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? And I'm thinking, he's been hit by a truck. <laughs> he's been shot. You know, I'm just, all these pleasant thoughts are just going through my mind. And it's like the kid was reading my, my thoughts, and he goes, no. He's become a Jesus freak. He's gotten saved. And I'm going, no way. I mean, I really, I wasn't sure the kid even had a soul. And here God has saved him. But honestly, I am so thankful God did. And it was such a powerful lesson to me. God does not desire my enemy to perish. When I desire for him to perish, and God desires for him to come to repentance, we got a problem. And it's just pride. Who is he to hurt me? It's just pride. I don't deserve this. It's pride. You're going to have victory over your enemies. It truly begins with praying for them. Praying for their good, for their salvation, for God's gracious and merciful work in their lives. And the scripture says to do good to them. Romans chapter 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heaping, doing good for those who harm you, and in doing so, you heap burning coals upon their heads. No one even knows what that means. Some thinks it means that when somebody comes to you late in the day, they go back home, they don't have a fire to start, and so just give them some coals to start a fire when they get back. That may be what it's talking about. It might be that it's just, you'll be putting them under conviction like nothing else could, just by being good. And I'm a little, I like that, but I'm, I'm still a bit reserved about it because we shouldn't do good for the purpose of bringing about conviction. Because there's selfishness mixed in with that. We don't know. And you know, I, you probably had the experience, so I've certainly had it, that you can do good to your enemy and your enemy twists the good as something that isn't good. 
You ever experienced that? Man alive. Going, then why not even do the good? They even take the good and turn it around and make something bad out of it. But nonetheless, the scripture says, overcome evil with good. And don't be overcome by evil. We have to look beyond the evildoer. The scripture says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Let me just read that passage just again for our reminder. We're told to, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where our battle is. I believe David had to come to realize that. And folks, you know, just to be honest, when I look at the political situation, it seems like when, you know, it's always at play. But especially when we have good people who are men and women of character, and often men and women of faith in Christ, who come into, in, in, into um, pu- the public eye and they are so ruthlessly attacked, groundlessly attacked. I think we have to acknowledge there is a spiritual battle going on. And when evil triumphs, and much greater evil than anything we see good, decent people being accused of, then it's time to recognize this isn't about the media. And this is not about Democrats. This is about spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And to recognize that, our enemy is the devil. And that's what Paul's saying here. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. We're not going to ever have victory over our enemies in our hearts if we don't understand who our true enemy is. And first and foremost, it's our own hearts, apart from Christ. Our own sin. But we also battle against the world and against the devil. And it sure makes it a lot easier when our so-called enemies understand that we don't view them as the problem even though they may view us as their problem. And then, to, we need to, if we're going to have victory over our enemies, to allow God to accomplish in us what He desires. And not to just constantly be fighting the enemy, but realizing again, the, that is not the problem. And many times in life, God allows a person to come at us and trouble us, and even persecute us for groundless reasons, for things that we are truly innocent of. As was happening with David, he had done nothing wrong, nothing to deserve what Saul did to him for 10 years. But that's not usually the issue. That is just God's tool to get at something else in our lives. If nothing else, God's tool to bring us into a place of greater humility and dependence and obedience to Him. If God accomplished nothing else, 
then I am persecuted and hounded and, and betrayed and attacked for all these years of my life. And yet in those years, I come to Christ in humility and dependence. Then they have not been years wasted. And no one has stolen anything from me. They have been God, that person has been God's instrument to do, do a work in me that could not have been accomplished otherwise. And once again, we begin to see that the person is not the problem. They are simply God's instrument. What they, are, what they accuse us of is not the issue. It's what, what God is wanting to do in giving him the freedom to do that. In the rest of this chapter, as David sings and he teaches, he tells others to learn this song in verse 18 that he chanted with this lament, and then he's told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. And so this was something that Israel actually passed down from generation to generation. And you see David highlighting the things that were good about Saul. It had to, again, have taken the grace of God. Because it'd be so easy to focus on what was not good. The funerals, as we all know, are not a time to remember the bad things. But it is a time to remember the good. When the enemy dies, it is a time to mourn, not to rejoice. When an enemy dies, it is a time to seek God and not presume that we know the way forward. Because you know, the, the, the hindrance is gone. The ball and chain is off now that the enemy is dead. So we're released, Right? David says, I'm not released from anything because Saul was not my ball and chain. The Lord God is the one who constrains me. And Saul's dead, but that does not mean I'm just released to pursue whatever I think God wants me to pursue. And David, in chapter 2, it says that he came about afterwards, after Saul had died, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And God said, said, go to Hebron. So David is not seeing himself as just a free man skipping through the meadows because his enemy is dead. And again, because Saul was not his problem. He was an instrument of God in his life. So when your enemy dies, it is not a time just to plan out the rest of your life. It is a time to come to God as you were when your enemy was alive. He focuses on the good, praises him. I have to comment, I hate to even do so because it just cheapens this whole passage, but we know in verse 26 of chapter 1 where David says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of a woman, than the love of women. We know the homosexual community takes that and runs with it and tries to make something vile here that there was a same-sex attraction between David and Jonathan. Absolutely ridiculous. And I tell you, when people say that kind of thing, it just, again, reveals their own hearts. And the corruption of that heart, that you cannot see a, how two men 
heterosexual, healthy men can have a deep love for each other that is different than and in some ways better than the love between a man and a woman. And, and if that is something that God wants us all to have had some experience of in our life. It's a good thing. There's nothing corrupt here, nothing that the homosexual community would make it. And it really saddens me for them that they think that every relationship that is intimate between men has to be a sexual relationship. That is to their loss. And I would hope for them that they would experience that you can have purity and you can have affection and love man to man and is not in any way sexual. These next chapters all the way up to chapter 5 is really just a transition to the throne. And again, if David were thinking humanly, carnally, he would just, I mean, he'd just go, Saul's dead. Show me the throne, man. I've been anointed. I've been waiting for 10 years. It's time to sit on the throne. Doesn't happen. In fact, it's going to be another seven years before David's going to sit on the throne of Israel. Another seven years. I mean, you go, what is God's timetable here? And, and so David will immediately, relatively immediately, be made king over Hebron. And that will include Judah. But Abner, the commander of the army of Israel under Saul, wants the house, wants Israel to continue to be led by the house of Benjamin because Abner was also from the house of Benjamin. And so Abner's out there trying to keep all of Israel trained on Benjamin. And in particular, one of the sons of Saul, one who apparently was not in the battle, Ishbosheth. And so it takes Abner five years, while David is reigning in Hebron, it takes Abner five years to manipulate things to get Ishbosheth on the throne of Israel. And he will only reign for two years before Ishbosheth is assassinated, and then all Israel comes over to David. So it again seems to be another lost seven years. And so we're told. In verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mononim. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. And the time that David was king over Hebron, over the house of Judah, was seven years and six months. More transition, more preparation, more God readying David to rule as king. Has it ever come to an end? In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew continually weaker. Long war, seven and a half years. It just wasn't an easy transition once Saul had died. And then in verse 6, And it came about that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. 
Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. Ai and Ishbosheth said to Abner, "Why have you gone into my father's concubine?" And this made Abner angry. And he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and you have not, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. Yet today you charge me with guilt concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner and more also, if, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. What Abner was accused of doing, we don't know whether he actually did it or not. Um, The commentators seem to think that he actually did. But when a king died, all of his wives and concubines went to the next king. And it was a way that that next king could express publicly that he was in full control and had full reins of power over the previous king. And so by Abner, the commander of the army, going into this woman is a way of saying, I am the real head of Israel, not Ishbosheth. And in fact, that was the case. Ishbosheth was just a figurehead. Abner was the power behind him. And so Abner says, I'm going to give the throne to David. And so he goes down to David, meets with David, and says, I'll do it. And then as, as he leaves and goes away, Joab, the commander of David's army, He says, what have you done? And here Joab's brother, Abishai, had already been killed, or Athiel, I forget which of the two, had already been killed by Abner. They were in battle. And and he's chasing after Abner and, and won't stop. And Abner runs his spear through and kills him. And Joab has wanted Abner dead ever since, only to come back back and find that David has formed a peace treaty with Abner and that Abner's going to hand over Israel to David. And so Joab sent messengers after Abner and said, come back, I need to meet with you. Met him in Hebron, and by the way, Hebron is one of the cities of refuge. And so if a person killed another person, they could flee to a city of refuge and not be killed as long as they were in that city. And so Abner comes to Hebron, Joab goes out to the city gate with him, and he stabs him there in full view of everybody. And now the peace treaty between Israel and Judah has come to an end before it even got started. And David, again, the length of time to him taking the throne is is put back because of what what Joab had done. And then in chapter 4, now the throne of Israel is particularly weak because Abner is dead, and two uh, men come to to, um, Ishbosheth and they assassinate him, cut his head off, bring the head to David, and David goes, do you really think this is what I wanted you to do? And once again, when an enemy of David falls, David very genuinely and sincerely mourns over the death of the enemy and, and kills the two men who assassinated the son of Saul, Ishbosheth. And then finally, in chapter 5, we're told that David, verse 4, was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now, I just want to just wrap up, because I did hear the bell ring. So good of the city to do that for y'all. One of our folks tells me that he's paid the city to turn up the volume on that so that I am sure to hear it. David, at this time in his life, is an impressive man. And 
he's impressive because clearly he is not acting like the world around him. And it seems that these 10 years of running around in a desert has taught him some things about his God. And there are some basic convictions that are ruling in David. Clearly, he understands that David is not king. And ultimately, Saul's not king. God is king. God is king. And God is in charge. And we have to yield to him. And we start taking life up into our own hands, we're going to become bitter, resentful people. There's going to be no joy in us. Reminds me of the person who said, life is hard, and then you die. It's the kind of person to invite to your birthday party. <laughs> life is hard, and death is not the end. And as believers in Jesus Christ with the hope of a resurrection, we of all people should know that. God is king. Things don't happen by chance. And God is after more than our happiness. So much more. And if it takes a lifetime of troubles to equip us for an eternity with Jesus... None of us are going to stand at the end when we are standing before God in glory and say it was too much for too long. In fact, the scripture says we're going to say it was momentary light affliction. God is king was the first core value that David seems to be to have installed in him during this time. David will also frequently write in the Psalms and say God is righteous in all he does. Why is that important for David to say over and over again in the Psalms? God is righteous in all his dealings. Because it looks like 10 years where God has not been righteous in his dealings. Because David has suffered for what he has not done. Men are not righteous in all their dealings. Saul was not righteous in his dealings with David. But God is righteous in all that he does. And David also came to understand God is full of mercy. Full of mercy. And when his heart is reflected in ours, we are not going to dance a jig when our enemies die. We will grieve, genuinely grieve their loss. God's goal is Christ-likeness in each of us. And knowing that, we are not moving toward in this life when the, pre- the process is done and we can finally get to where we're supposed to be. When you're in first grade, somebody tells you you've got 12 years ahead of you. And you go, oh, my word. How will I ever live that long? Remember that? And then somebody tells you now it's time for college. Four more years. And then while you're there, some of us have this thought, well, I should go more. And so it'll be another four years or six years. And then finally you get to start life. And then you start life. And you keep wondering, when are you going to start life? Because you're paying off bills and you got kids that you're raising. And you think, well, you know, then you think, well, now retirement's here. 
And then all these kids that you had have all kinds of problems. And you're still dealing with it. And you're starting to have all this physical stuff you didn't have before. I was at the gun show in Kerrville a couple weeks ago, and there's an old couple there, and they're selling stuff to spray on your hurts. And I'm just going, well, I, and I told him, I said, at the moment, I have no hurts. But I might come back someday. You know, I didn't say that, but I'm thinking that. You know, because they're my age. And they're going, really? And I, but that's part of it. You know, there's just, there's always something. And we're going, when are we going to get there? David lived that kind of thing. He was anointed to be king when he was a teenage boy. And now that Saul's dead, he's still going, when are we going to get there? It is a life of transitions. And it ultimately isn't about this life. But it's about an eternity with our Lord and Savior. And he wants us to just be mindful. Stop looking for these short-term goals. They're, They're illusions. There's no reality with that. That's not God's goal is not graduating from high school, graduating from college, graduating from grad school, having kids, retiring. None of those are God's goals. God's goal for us is Christ-likeness. And he's got a big toolbox of all the things that he can use, and sometimes they're labeled enemy, to bring us into conformity to Jesus. And he just wants us to say, here I am, Lord. And I'm sure looking forward to that day when I can be with you in glory. Let me close this in prayer.